0: March 11, 2020, marks the ninth anniversary of the start of the Fukushima nuclear triple meltdown disaster in Japan. And that country's government is now making a concerted effort to force evacuated families, including children, to move back to their homes. They're telling the world, and in particular, those they want to come to the Tokyo Olympics, that everything is safe. But those so-called safe measurements are based on the effects of external radioactivity on a healthy adult male, not on women or children. So when a Japanese reporter who's been covering Fukushima since the earthquake began this nightmare tells you...
1: One of the troublesome things about radiation is that the farther you get away from it, the lower the exposure will be. Babies and children are shorter than adults, so they are living closer to the ground. This means that the effects of radiation on their heads and their internal organs is higher than that of adults. And there
0: is much more to be concerned about. Many ways in which Fukushima continues to endanger life as one of the hottest of the nuclear seats that we all share. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, our annual Fukushima anniversary voices from Japan. We'll have an exclusive interview with reporter Takashi Yamakawa, part of Tokyo Shimbun's nuclear power reporting team. Later, we'll gain first-hand impressions of radiation problems in the exclusion zone through a travel diary by Nuclear Hot Seat's Voices from Japan investigative reporter, Yuji Kaneko. We'll be guided in our understanding throughout by this episode's co-producer, Beverly Finlay Kaneko, who will also fill us in on the latest radiation findings along the still-planned Olympic torch relay through Fukushima Prefecture. Today is Tuesday, March 10, 2020, and here is the Nuclear Hot Seat, Voices from Japan, Fukushima ninth Anniversary Special. Beverly Finlay Kaneko, thank you for joining us. And please, tell us a little bit about Takashi Yamakawa and the Tokyo Shimbun.
2: Tokyo Shimbun newspaper is a large metropolitan publication in Tokyo. It's also known as the Chunichi Shimbun in Nagoya, which is south of Tokyo. Both editions of the paper have a combined readership of 3.5 million people in Japan. For comparison's sake, the Los Angeles Times is about 650,000. Tokyo Shimbun is a local metropolitan publication, but it's known for its very aggressive reporting. I'd like to talk a little bit about the mass media in Japan. The media lost the public's trust after the accident at Fukushima Daiichi because it did not report accurate information. This is because of TEPCO's dominance as a huge sponsor of newspapers, magazines, and TV. The media couldn't criticize TEPCO because they had too much to lose. Even in the case of the nuclear accident, they couldn't criticize TEPCO too severely. Because Tokyo Shimbun and other local papers did not rely on TEPCO's funding, they did not fall under TEPCO's influence.
0: That explains why so often in reporting on Nuclear Hot Seat, I found a very different tone between articles coming from Tokyo Shinbun and so many of the other publications that I was using to source the stories.
2: I think so. Another thing I'd like to point out is that the Abe administration has had a further chilling influence on the media. The state secrets law went into effect in December 2014 to discourage whistleblowers in the areas that were considered sensitive to national security, and the nuclear industry was thought to be one of those areas. The law was expected to cause news outlets to engage in self-censorship. During the Abe years, Japan has dropped from 11 to number 67 on the Reporters Without Borders World Press Freedom Index. Tokyo Shimbun may be smaller than the big national papers, but it has maintained a nimble stance in the face of both political and corporate power. This kind of watchdog journalism is rare in Japan. There is a thing called the kisha club or the press club system, where reporters are assigned to cover various government offices. Members are allowed to ask questions, and sometimes those questions are reviewed in advance. Reporters tend to mind their manners to keep in the good graces of whatever ministry that they're covering, making them little more than note takers. Our guest on Nuclear Hot Seat today, Yamakawa-san, is one of four members of the Tokyo Shimbun nuclear power reporting team that was formed in the wake of Fukushima. They report on all manner of nuclear issues across Japan. They're a small team at a small paper, but the work they do is incredible. From 2017, the team formed their very own, very detailed website and Twitter account where they actively report on the issues. We will have the links to both the website
0: and the Twitter account up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com under this episode, number 455. For now, we're going to run that interview with Takeshi Yamakawa.
1: I am Takeshi Yamakawa. I'm an editor with Tokyo Shimbun newspaper. I've been reporting on nuclear issues since the accident on March 11th, 2011.
0: I have a lot of things I'd like to ask you today, but first of all, since you started reporting on nuclear issues, what kinds of things have you specifically focused on?
1: Well, I actually started on the very day of the earthquake. In the beginning, over a 24-hour period We never knew when TEPCO would be giving updates. So, Tokyo Shimbun gathered 34 reporters from their posts all over Japan to cover the accident on a revolving 24-hour schedule. I was kind of the director of that effort. Once the accident site settled down somewhat, I began to focus on the people in Fukushima. More recently, for the past five or six years, in addition to shedding light on the local area i've also been measuring radiation and writing analytical articles using the data that i've collected those are the main things that i've been working on
0: while you've been reporting on fukushima what has made the biggest impression on you
1: hmm well the most shocking thing would have to be visiting fukushima daiichi for the first time the first time i went was in about February of 2012. It was really cold then. About 20 kilometers or 12 miles away from the power plant, there was a barricade, and you couldn't go any further. From there, we got on a TEPCO bus. We took Route 6, which at the time was very bumpy and in bad condition. Whether you looked left or right, there were black wagyu cattle wandering around the abandoned farmhouses. In barns eating what they could find. There were ostriches running around. At that time, there was still a lot of radioactive iodine, which decays comparatively quickly in the environment. The radiation level was extremely high and only got higher as we approached the plant. When we entered the accident site, we first went to the accident response headquarters to a seismic isolation building. In other words, there's a structure built to withstand earthquakes. When I got out of the bus, my radiation monitor shot up to 500 microsieverts per hour. I stepped onto the asphalt, and our TEPCO guide angrily shouted at me, if you don't get over here on this iron plate immediately, you're going to be exposed to too much radiation. I quickly jumped onto the iron plate, and the reading went down to about half of what it was. I strongly felt what it must be like for the workers to be toiling in such a contaminated place where asphalt and soil had absorbed such high levels of radiation. Next, we went into the seismic isolation building. Even in that sealed off structure, the radiation was so high that it made me wonder why it would be so high there. I asked, and it was told that even though it was built expressly to be used in case of a nuclear accident, it was very hard to keep all of the radiation out. The filters didn't filter out everything. The automatic door was slightly askew because of the earthquake, and it would sometimes stay open instead of shutting, letting in the radiation it was supposed to keep out. Strangely, there were a lot of windows in the building, and there was seepage around them. Workers like the Fukushima 50 couldn't be left in such conditions. So they plastered plastic sheeting all over the world inside to keep out drafts. They also made a point to clean often inside the building. I was shocked to see such harsh work conditions. As we got closer to the other areas of the plant like the reactor buildings themselves, the readings on my radiation monitor changed from microsieverts to millisieverts. In other words, 1,000 times higher and I was inside the bus, where it was supposed to be lower. If it was 1.5 millisieverts inside the bus, it must have been at least two or three times higher outside. I think that was the most shocking thing. Even now, I can't forget it.
0: Since then, the situation at Fukushima Daiichi has improved, but there are still many problems, aren't there? For example, Work to dismantle the highly radioactive exhaust stack has many challenges. You've been reporting on that lately, haven't you?
1: Well, the conditions inside the plant are far better than what I described above. Several aspects of the work conditions have improved. For example, the ground is now covered with concrete and asphalt, and there aren't any areas where dirt is exposed. So that keeps the dust and the radiation levels down. They've been able to keep the hilly areas around the plant down to about one microsievert per hour. But as you go down the hill toward the reactor buildings, about 10 meters or 30 feet above sea level, it goes up to about 30 microsieverts per hour. The closer you get to the reactor buildings, the higher it gets.
0: Let me interject here that 30 microsieverts per hour is about 600 times the background radiation in Yokohama, for example.
1: The radiation inside of the reactor buildings is still extremely high, so reporters can't enter. But Japan Nuclear Regulation Authority officers have started to go in the building to conduct surveys. There are many spots where the radiation reaches 50 millisieverts per hour. And there are still many places inside that people cannot get close to that are much higher. Work to dismantle the extremely radioactive exhaust stack that you asked about is around half finished. But in November or December of last year, they hit a really dangerous snag. Humans cannot get close to the exhaust stack because of the radiation is so high. With the radiation rising up out of the exhaust stack, they had to suspend a worker in a gondola over the stack so he could rappel down using a rope and try to dislodge the device with a hand grinder. One small mistake like that could send the whole decommissioning operation into crisis. The work on the stack is about half done, which means it is about half its original height. The shorter it gets, the higher the radiation levels from below become. At 120 meters, it was 80 microsieverts and at 60 meters, it's about 300 microsieverts or 0.3 millisieverts. It is getting to the point where you can't suspend anyone over it because they would be too dangerously exposed to the radiation. At that point, if you were to use a worker to fix a problem, it would be with the knowledge that they would be overly exposed. Luckily right now, Things are progressing smoothly, but one small mistake could lead to a horrible situation.
0: Why does the radiation level get higher the further down you get in the exhaust stack?
1: That's mainly because radiation is emitting from the operations floor in reactor one. There is still debris strewn everywhere. That's where the radiation is coming from. Also, the top of the exhaust stack is often exposed to rain. So radioactive particles don't stick. But toward the base, the most recent measurements read 4,000 millisieverts or four sieverts. If you spend even an hour there, you will die. It's clear that contamination concentrates toward the bottom. It's because materials that accumulated there when they vented the reactors are still there.
0: I get it. Let's change the subject. Could you tell our listeners about the experiments you are doing in I Datemura village? Yesterday when we visited I Datemura, you showed me what you are doing with potatoes. It was really interesting.
1: Oh, the potato growing experiment that I showed you yesterday? Well, Itosan, who I'm always bothering, has a wood-burning stove. As fuel He uses wood from oaks and other trees in the surrounding hills. When you burn wood, of course, you end up with ashes. For farmers, those ashes serve as fertilizer for crops. It had been customary for farmers to take the ash produced by the fires that heated their baths and such and sprinkle it around the rice paddies for fertilizer. But after the nuclear accident, Wood from local trees was contaminated with radiation and the ash produced by burning this wood was particularly high in radiation. So sprinkling it around crops was banned. Nevertheless, from last year, bans were lifted on a couple of things customarily used to fertilize crops. Ash from burning fields after the harvest and rice straw that is tilled back into the fields. I began to wonder, whether using that ash was really safe or not. And that's where Ito-san and I started to grow potatoes to see how much cesium is taken up into the plant. We are using soil with various levels of cesium contamination. We're using ash from Ito-san's wood-burning stove as fertilizer in some of the samples. In other areas in Fukushima, they have tried removing topsoil and applying potassium in rice farming to try to prevent the uptake of cesium into the plant. I also wondered about the wild mountain vegetables such as koshiabara that are delicious in dishes like tempura.
0: Let me interject here that wild mountain vegetables and mushrooms are still very contaminated according to measurements taken at various citizen's radiation monitoring stations.
1: Yes. We chose the Koshiabula plant because it really absorbs cesium. We found six koshibla plants in the forest and set up signs saying, Tokyo Shimbun newspaper experiment. We've applied potassium to some and not the others to see how much it can reduce the uptake of cesium in these plants.
0: That's interesting. How long do you expect to continue this experiment?
1: I'm doing it because eight, nine, and coming up on 10 years after the disaster, even local people's memories are starting to get a little hazy. I guess this can only be expected. Right after the accident, it was common sense that the local trees are contaminated, so we shouldn't burn them. But as memories fade, people began to think, we have all of this good wood and good ash. It should be okay to use them on our farms. So I think it's better to have some evidence to show what would happen if that ash is used. There needs to be a concrete reason to tell people why they shouldn't do something.
0: Lately, there's been a lot of noise that Fukushima has recovered. Yamakawa-san, from what you have witnessed, do you think recovery has really progressed in Fukushima? Do you think that what the government touts as recovery or reconstruction is really heading in the right direction?
1: You're asking what exactly is meant by recovery or reconstruction? Well, a lot of buildings have gone up. Naraha, where J Village is, got a lot of new buildings. Tomioka got a fancy shopping center. Okuma and Futaba, which are right near Fukushima Daiichi, had their train station totally rebuilt and decontamination is in full swing. If you think recovery or reconstruction means busy construction sites and the sounds of hammers echoing, then maybe it is progressing. But really, the most important thing is whether or not the original residents have returned or not. And even if it's impossible to restore their lives as they were before, it's important to get as close to that as possible. In that case, the answer is a definitive no. If you look at the percentage of people who have returned, in Tomioka and Namie, it's only 10%. And about 9% of those are temporary extended stay residents involved in reconstruction, decontamination, and decommissioning work. These people are living in newly built apartments it's hard to tell how many actual original residents have returned. Among the coastal Hamadori towns, Naraha and Hirono have come along the furthest as far as restoring life to what it was before. But even in Naraha, only 57% of original residents have returned, according to the most recent figures.
0: What is the biggest reason for original residents not returning?
1: Well, when you ask them, They point to the long time that they have been living in evacuation. Children who were small when the accident happened are already in elementary and junior high school in the places where they took refuge. They've made friends. Mom and dad have found new jobs in their new towns. Some people built new homes because they had no idea how long their exile would last. Of course, their hometowns are important, but it's hard to move around all of the time. There's also worry about radiation and the fact that the medical services are not back to normal. But the most important reason is that they've built new lives in the places where they evacuated to.
0: So you said that rather than radiation, it's the people have moved on in their lives that prevents them from returning. But even if that's not the first reason, I wonder if there are people who do worry about lingering radiation. Do you really think the situation has improved enough that people don't need to worry about radiation?
1: Hmm, that's a difficult question. First, crops from farms that are being managed properly are no problem. From time to time, we have tested vegetables that we have received from various farmers. The things that we have tested have never even measured one becquerel per kilogram. Even when we have dehydrated the vegetables so they are concentrated and tested, the results have come back negative. At my house, we eat rice from Naraha. People from around here live in tandem with nature. And when it becomes spring, they say, I want to eat fukinoto, a kind of wild mountain vegetable. And around the time of the May holiday week, you hear the wadabi and zanmai mountain vegetables are sprouting. But those wild mountain vegetables are definitely contaminated with cesium, whether it be a lot or a little. So absolutely, if you don't measure them, you won't know how contaminated they are. As for fish, there is almost nothing to worry about ocean fish. But freshwater species like sweet fish and char still register unsafe levels of radiation there are still char being caught that register more than the government safety standard of 100 becquerels per kilogram. Even closer to Tokyo, in the area around Gunma, freshwater fish contaminated with cesium-137, which has a half-life of 30 years, are still being caught. I think the reality is that in our lifetimes, the effects of radiation will more or less continue to be an issue. But food that is being sold in regular markets isn't really such a big concern. Water is being cleaned, and water from sealed wells is no problem. As far as environmental radiation goes, in towns such as in Naraha and Tomioka, the levels are almost no problem. What
0: is considered to be a safe level of radiation around town, then?
1: The government standard is 0.23 microsieverts per hour for a total of one millisievert per year of exposure. But 0.23 is just one indicator. Around town in Naraha, it is lower than 0.1 microsieverts per hour. But if you go up into the hills, it is 0.3 and 0.4. Unless you're going to go up and live outdoors in the forest, it's not a problem. A monk that we know carries around a personal dosimeter to measure cumulative exposure. His yearly dose is less than one. It's about 0.8. Well, if the radiation level is like it is in Naraha, it's probably okay to live there. If Naraha were my hometown, I would probably return. But the farther north you go, the more the situation changes. In Tomioka, especially around the train station, they have thoroughly decontaminated and brought in clean soil. So around there, you don't get high radiation readings. But the Yonomori area is still in the exclusion zone. If you head even farther north into Okuma and Futaba, the radiation levels are very high even though there are spots where evacuation orders have been lifted. But even in these now open areas, the lowest readings are 0.3 microsieverts per hour. The exclusion zone is many magnitudes higher, and you can't live there. Heading north again to Namie, on the ocean side of the town, the levels are down, but on the mountainside, the levels go up dramatically. It will be a long time before the mountain side of the town can be reopened. So in Namie, there are areas where it's okay to return, like around the train station. But here and there, radiation levels can suddenly go from a safe 0.2 and spike to 0.4 or 0.6. It makes it difficult to have a community in Namie when residents connections are broken like this. It's a tough situation when you hold a community event, like a festival, and these people can attend, but those people can't because they are still living in evacuation.
0: So even though there are some comparatively safe areas, they are mixed in with others where you have to be careful. Does this mean that if you're not meticulously careful, it's hard to live a normal life?
1: The gist of what I was saying is that In the southern part of Fukushima, there are places where it is already okay to live. But even in those places, for the next 20 or 30 years, you'll have to be very careful about eating anything from the wild.
0: Don't families with babies and small children have to exercise more caution?
1: Well, yes. One of the troublesome things about radiation is that the farther you get away from it, the lower the exposure will be. Babies and children are shorter than adults, so they are living closer to the ground. This means that the effects of radiation on their heads and their internal organs is much different than adults. Also, their sensitivity to radiation is higher than that of adults. That's why so many moms evacuated with kids and left dad behind. I totally understand how they feel.
0: Finally, Yamakawa-san, how do you plan to be involved with Fukushima on a personal level from now on?
1: As an individual, I think that my job is to continue to document what is going on in Fukushima for as long as I live. As a reporter, I only have about 10 years left until retirement. I don't really care about advancing in the company I told Tokyo Shimbun that all I want to report on is Fukushima, and they've given me a long leash to range freely. As long as I write a lot of articles and submit them every week, they let me do what I want.
0: It seems like all we hear from the Japanese media is that Fukushima is no longer a problem. I hope newspapers like Tokyo Shimbun will continue to report accurate and detailed data
1: Tokyo Shimbun is not a big company, so our roles as reporters aren't so specifically defined as those at the big newspapers. In my case, I go to typical press conferences, I monitor radiation, and I record the voices of Fukushima residents. I'm kind of a jack of all trades. That's one of the good things about working for Tokyo Shimbun.
0: Do you hear anything about the large media companies being pressured by their sponsors and not being able to print certain things?
1: Tokyo Shimbun has never been pressured. We've never had advertising from utility companies, so we've never had a problem with pressure.
0: So is that one of the reasons why you've been able to criticize TEPCO and print accurate articles?
1: Well... I've never thought it was my mission to write bad things about TEPCO. For example, when I've written about the exhaust stack demolition, when things are going well, I've written complimentary articles. And several years ago at a press conference where TEPCO announced that they were going to give a danger pay allowance to decommissioning workers as part of improving their conditions, I directly praised the president of the company. But he was probably a little freaked out to hear some nice words from Tokyo Shimbun reporter who is always being critical. So I praise where praise is due. I'm trying to be fair.
0: Fair, fair reporting. Let's keep it up. That was an interview with Takashi Yamakawa, part of Tokyo Shimbun's nuclear power reporting team, interviewed by Yuji Kaneko. Beverly, it's amazing that Yamakawa san has covered so many facets of the Fukushima beat for such a long time. I mean, since the beginning of the accident.
2: Yes. Unfortunately, in terms of journalistic material, it's the gift that never stops giving.
0: The part about the exhaust stack at Fukushima Daiichi was frightening. Can you give us any more information on that, Beverly?
2: Yes. As Yamakawa-san mentioned, the stack was 120 meters tall, or about 120 yards tall. The inside of it is very contaminated because that was what was used to vent radioactive gas during the accident. During the hydrogen explosion, the steel framing was damaged and cracked. If it were to collapse now, huge amounts of radiation would be released into the environment. TEPCO hired a local construction company based in Hirono Town to dismantle the exhaust stack. It is just a relatively small company with about 200 workers. Doing this kind of work in such a highly radioactive condition is unprecedented. They started last year in August, and one round, paper-thin slice at a time, they have brought the exhaust stack down to 60 meters, or about half the original size. To avoid the high radiation, they've been running the operation by remote control from a bus that's about 200 meters or 220 yards away from the exhaust stack. They've placed 100 cameras to guide the cutting equipment. They need to cut with extreme accuracy down to the millimeter in order not to cause a release of radiation. It's unimaginably difficult to run the remote control operation as the exhaust stack shakes in the high winds. And remember that Fukushima Daiichi is right next to the ocean. It's often windy. And in events like Typhoon Hagibis last year, one of the things that everybody really worries about is that exhaust stack toppling over. It could be another major catastrophe. Unfortunately, as Yamakawa-san described, the operation hit a snag and the cutting equipment suddenly stopped. This was because the blade was off by a mere three centimeters. The deadly task of dislodging the blade by hand that he described took 11 hours.
0: Do we know when they are supposed to finish?
2: They were supposed to be done by the end of March, but because of problems like the stuck blade, they probably won't be done until the beginning of May, even working around the clock. Here's hoping there won't be any accidents. I hope for the same thing. This kind of operation is a glaring illustration of just how dangerous decommissioning Fukushima Daiichi is. A small error can lead to a major catastrophe. I don't understand how the government can say that the plant is stable and everything is under control. And it seems absolutely criminal to me to compel former residents to return to live in the shadow of such danger. And planning Olympic events near such a precarious site is incredibly irresponsible.
0: That is putting it mildly. We'll continue with this week's special Fukushima 9th Anniversary Voices from Japan episode in just a moment. But first, every year... Nuclear Hot Seat produces Voices from Japan to share little-known information and perspective about the ongoing impact of the 2011 earthquake, tsunami, and the start of the Fukushima nuclear disaster. We utilize interviews in Japanese with individuals you might not hear from otherwise, and they share details that are not commonly known. It takes a lot of time and energy to secure the interviews, translate them, record the voiceovers, and put together the pieces so that you, the listener, receive a clear, accurate picture of how things really are in Fukushima right now. That's what Nuclear Hot Seat exists to do, not just for this anniversary, but every week of the year. And you know, in order to do this 52 weeks of the year, Nuclear Hot Seat is dependent upon donations to meet our expenses So if you find yourself learning what you didn't know before, you feel moved, touched, horrified, or enraged by learning what is really happening to the evacuees and survivors of the Fukushima nuclear disaster, help us now by making a donation. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red Donate button. That's to send a donation of any size. And to set up a monthly $5 donation the same as a cup of coffee here in the U.S., just click on the big green Donate button, again at NuclearHotSeat.com. Help us keep reporting the nuclear truth in Fukushima or wherever it may be hidden. Do what you can now, and know that I'm deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now back to this week's Nuclear Hot Seat special, Fukushima 9th Anniversary Voices from Japan. Let's shift our focus. I was a little confused by Yamakawa-san's discussion of food safety in Fukushima. I understand the part about wild mountain vegetables,
2: but what about the things you can buy in the market? Well, first, we have to remember that Yamakawa-san is a reporter and he walks a fine line in his professional life. He works with known facts and research, and he's trying to do more research himself to find what works and what doesn't. Regarding the food sold in shops in Fukushima, it's impossible to know whether it's really safe or not. Food from Fukushima that's on the market is almost certainly below the 100 becquerels per kilogram standard set by the government. Almost nothing that is tested by Fukushima Prefecture is over that limit now. Also, Recently, citizens' radiation monitoring stations rarely turn up anything from local farms that exceed that standard. But is 100 becquerels per kilogram really safe? Or is it just an arbitrary Alara, as low as reasonably achievable number? And obviously, they can't test every last cucumber and every last carrot. And there are still hot spots. In many areas. So you can't be 100% certain. Again, there are things from the wild that regularly go over the limit, and that is dangerous. Libby, I think you remember that recently you asked me about radiation contamination in food, and I went and checked a few different citizens' radiation monitoring station websites. Several wild things, such as wild boar meat, mushrooms, and mountain vegetables still exceeded the government limit, but mostly produce sold on the market appeared to be quote-unquote safe. Also, different countries have different safety standards, and there's different political situations in different countries. It's surprising to me that 1,200 becquerels per kilogram is considered safe in the United States. In other words, in the US, it's okay to eat food that's 12 times more contaminated than what the Japanese government allows. The European Union allows 400 to 1,250 becquerels per kilogram of cesium in food. Again, this is higher than in Japan. One thing that all of the testing for radiation in Japan uncovered for our family was that the French blueberry jam that we'd been eating for years was contaminated. I'm pretty sure it was taken off the market in Japan, but it's still on the shelves here in the United States.
0: Well, these high safety thresholds are probably because of atmospheric nuclear testing and the Chernobyl nuclear disaster, which contaminated the planet Earth. And there's really no such thing left as clean food. Here in our local environment in California, oil drilling byproducts are often radioactive, and those contaminate the groundwater. Areas where there
2: is fracking are of particular concern. Personally, I'd like to have food that's the closest to zero as possible, especially if there are kids at home. That's why I'm careful. If I have a choice in the market, I don't buy food from Fukushima. Even government information on the internet shows that although Fukushima food is well under the limit in general, it has higher levels of radiation than other areas in Japan. And food from Hamadori along Fukushima's coast is more contaminated than food from the middle and western parts of the prefecture. When I travel to Fukushima, I'm not picky but I'm well beyond the age where it really matters. Fukushima moms worry about their kids too. In Miharu last year, I spoke to a young mother who was working in the Komutan Museum, which teaches about radiation in a way that promotes the safety myth. Even she feeds her small child food from other areas outside of Fukushima.
0: Your husband, Yuji Kaneko our Voices from Japan investigative reporter, just finished another trip to Fukushima to research for nuclear hot seat. Where did he go and what did he see?
2: He traveled with Takeshi Yamakawa from the Tokyo Shimbun to several recently reopened towns in the former exclusion zone. They followed the Olympic torch relay routes and took in various reconstruction sites. Yuji also interviewed people for some future Nuclear Hot Seat Radioactive Olympics episodes. There was an overwhelming amount of material.
0: Yes, from what it is that you've shared with me already, it sounds like it was an assault on his senses. Can you give us a little background on Iitate Mura Village and Okuma Town, where he visited?
2: Sure. Temura is northwest of Fukushima Daiichi, the radioactive plume from the Fukushima Daiichi triple meltdown changed directions at one point, spewing radioactive particles all over the village. It's one of the areas that is not right along the coast that has suffered severe contamination and was part of the exclusion zone until fairly recently. Originally, there were 6,509 residents, but the population as of February 1st this year was only 1,408. Many of the returnees are senior citizens, and there's little industry to support the town. Itate Murda is on the Olympic torch relay. There are still many hot spots in the vicinity of the route. Okuma Town is directly west of Fukushima Daiichi, which straddles the border of Okuma and Futaba to its north. Along with Futaba, it was one of the most severely affected areas during the accident. Last year, we traveled along Route 6, which slices through both Okuma and Futaba. Even with the windows up in our car, the radiation levels were high. Out of 11,505 original residents, only 733 people live there now. And remember that in all of the former exclusion zone towns and villages, much of the present population is not made up of original residents. Instead, they are mostly men involved in decontamination, construction, and so on.
0: Yuji kept a diary while he was in Fukushima Prefecture and traveled the Olympic Torch Route. Let's hear a bit of what he observed while he was there.
3: In February, I traveled through Fukushima's recently reopened exclusion zones with Tokyo Shimbun newspaper reporter Takeshi Yamakawa. Many things about our journey made an impression on me, but probably what I remember most were all the new buildings in the middle of the disaster zone. In Itatemura Village, our car wove its way through abandoned rice paddies and vacant land stacked with pyramids of black bags full of contaminated debris. Suddenly, we would come across any number of luxurious and fancy buildings. There were new schools, city halls, and sports facilities. Billions, no, tens of billions of reconstruction tax funds were spent on these structures. When setting against the surrounding barren landscape, the new buildings made me feel uneasy. I felt a bout of vertigo coming on. In Okuma Town, we visited the splendid new town hall because I needed to use the restroom. I walked into the fabulous and spacious lobby with high ceilings. There was a counter, and on the other side sat about 20 clerks, but there were no residents there to serve. When I entered the room, all 20 pairs of eyes turned toward me. It appeared that I was their first customer in a long time. The clerk politely asked, how can i help you today sir and i answered could i use the restroom i think they were really disappointed i don't know what to say that's how few people there are in these newly reopened exclusion zones it really sunk in that people haven't returned the disconnect between the new city halls and schools and the reality of the absence of people to use them made the new buildings seem like space stations floating in the void and the fact that these brand new squeaky clean facilities were surrounded by a radioactive moonscape made it seem all the more like outer space. In particular, Itatemura's new accredited compound for children was stunning in more than one sense of the word. Part of the complex is devoted to educating children from 0 to 15 years old. It also comprises an athletic park. Construction fees for the whole compound were a whopping 57 billion yen or more than half of a billion dollars. On top of that, there are educational costs for the children, textbooks and materials, school lunch, uniforms designed by the world-famous designer Hiroko Koshino, extracurricular activities, field trips, and longer school excursions. All of this is free. According to the PR material from the grand opening of the school, the village pays tuition for all of the students. This amounts to 100 to 150,000 yen per preschooler, 100 to 160,000 yen per elementary schooler, and 200 to 250,000 yen for middle schoolers. So, depending on the age of the child, the village pays roughly $1,000 to $2,500 per child each year. If you divide all of these costs by 117, or the number of students enrolled when the school opened, the annual per student cost actually comes to 17 million yen, or one hundred and sixty thousand dollars. And there's more. Eighty-five percent, or one hundred students, don't even live in Iitatemura. They live in the areas where their families evacuated, such as Iwaki, and even farther afield. The school provides a long-distance school bus for the kids. Iwaki is nearly sixty miles away, over an hour and a half on the Joban Expressway. The school also provides taxis for those that live too far for the bus. Transportation fees alone cost 1.1 billion yen, over 10 million a year. Any way you look at it, 1.1 billion yen for transportation alone is incredible. Several families from the village have said that they were approached by the village school board to recruit their children to come to the school. So... To stem the migration of children out of the village, they've used every means possible to attract them back into the local school. Other things recently built in Itatimura include a fancy parking rest area, a community center, and a funeral home. All of these together cost over 100 billion yen, or close to a billion dollars. Japan's reconstruction tax monies are paying for all of this, and very little is coming out of the village coffers. And there is still more to come. Another community center is slated for the rest area property, and plans for a golf course park are on the drawing board. Village Mayor Sugano said, We can only use the reconstruction tax funds easily during the window for our reconstruction, so it's now or never. We need to use the money to promote recovery. But of course, once the facilities are built, the burden for paying for the upkeep will fall to the village which will probably cause the village to suffer in the end. That's the reconstruction situation in Fukushima's former exclusion zone. It remains to be seen whether we can call this a true recovery.
0: Beverly, on February 4th, 2020, for Nuclear Hot Seat number 450, you painted a picture for us as to what we might expect to see during the torch relay as it makes its way through the most radioactive parts of Fukushima. Has there been any new information since then?
2: Yes. First, there was a press conference at the Foreign Correspondents Club of Japan on February 3rd, discussing radioactive hotspots along the torch relay route in Fukushima. Second, small areas in Futaba, the town where Fukushima Daiichi is located, were open to the public on March 4th. Who was
0: at the press conference?
2: The speakers were Kazumasa Aoki, the vice president of the Radioactivity Monitoring Center for Citizen, Jun Nakamura, the co-chairman of the Fukuichi Area Environmental Radiation Monitoring Project, and Nobuyoshi Ito, an Itate Village resident. Yuji recently interviewed Ito-san for Nuclear Hot Seat. We'll share that soon in our ongoing Radioactive Olympics coverage. That's a
0: pretty heavy-duty lineup. What were they talking about to the reporters?
2: These groups covered the torch route in the Hamadori coastal area that is still contaminated. They conducted their tests over five days in December 2019 and January 2020. They measured air dose rates at one meter above the ground, as well as did soil sampling in 69 different places. Sampling both air and soil is important because the air dose can be unreliable if there are buildings and foliage in the way. Soil measurements are more reliable. In Chernobyl, the soil measurements were what determined evacuation areas. The groups took samples along the relay course itself and from random places such as side streets and residential areas. Much of what they spoke about echoes the information we shared on nuclear hot seat on February 4th, but there was some eye-opening new information.
0: What are some of the takeaways from the press conference?
2: 52% of all the measurements taken directly on the relay course were higher than the government standard. There was an extreme hot spot in Itate Village. It was 0.85 microsieverts. The soil contamination there was 2.14 million becquerels per square meter. The annual dose at this spot is 7.5 millisieverts, seven times the annual standard dose. The groups conducting the surveys initially thought that the relay course itself would be meticulously decontaminated because the government is promoting recovery so loudly but they were surprised by what their measurements revealed. They were angry that the government had also measured the hot spot in Itate village and brushed it off, implying that the torch runners would only pass by briefly. The government did not bother to question why the dose was so high in this location. The government attitude completely disregards the people living there all the time and that the government itself is compelling people to move back and be exposed 24/7, 365 days a year to radiation levels of up to 20 times what they were before the disaster. Additionally, regarding the runner's health, it might be okay if it were only external exposure that counted. However, March is a dry and windy time of year and there's a chance of inhaling radioactive dust in the air and suffering internal exposure. The groups think runners and families with small children should be warned ahead of time. There are still 31,000 people evacuated outside the prefecture. Itate resident Ito-san wondered how can the government claim that the accident is over when these people cannot return home? He says the reality of a nuclear disaster is that however much money you sink into reconstruction, a full recovery is impossible. That's about all from the press conference. Ito-san has sent us the links for their presentation handouts and slides to share with the listeners of Nuclear Hot Seat.
0: Terrific, Beverly. We will have the links to the press conference and other pertinent information up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 455. Now, what
2: about Futaba? Small areas in Futaba, the town where Fukushima Daiichi is located, were open to the public on March 4th. These include the train station and the area surrounding, as well as a small portion of the northeastern corner of the town. It's the last town to be reopened since the disaster. It has been deserted since then. Apparently there will be a small area around the station that will be available for construction workers to stay but residents will not be able to move back for two more years. Sadly, it appears that shoddy decontamination efforts, like what the gentleman at the Foreign Correspondents Club of Japan press conference described, are continuing in Futaba. We have a personal friend who has been involved in bringing the train stations in the former exclusion zones back online. When he heard that Yuji was planning to visit Futaba Station next week when it reopens, he told him not to go because it is dangerous. In the rush to meet the Olympic time schedule set by the government, the decontamination efforts around the station have been hasty at best.
0: I'd be curious as to what the groups that spoke at the press conference will uncover when they're able to conduct surveys in Futaba.
2: When we find out, we'll let you know.
0: That was Beverly Findlay Kaneko. Note that as of this recording, the Olympic torch relay is still scheduled to begin on March 26 and be run for three days through Fukushima Prefecture, including the towns of Futaba and Okuma. This despite the radiation readings you heard about on this show and COVID-19 concerns. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, March 10, 2020. The Voices from Japan Fukushima 9th Anniversary Special. Our deepest thanks to co producer Beverly Findlay Kaneko for her insights, translation skills, and unfailing good humor. To Yuji Kaneko in Japan for his persistence in finding the best possible sources to share information we would not normally encounter. We will have more of Yuji's interviews in upcoming episodes of Nuclear Hot Seat. We just couldn't fit them all on this show. Our thanks also to Kay Ogawa for helping us secure the voiceover performers and to Shin Kawasaki and Ryan Kaneko for voicing the English translations. Nuclear Hot Seat is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. And if you want a foolproof way to not miss a single episode, Go to NuclearHotSeat.com and scroll down for the yellow bar. That's where you can sign up for a weekly email that has the link to the latest show and a bit of information about what it contains. We're also on Facebook, where we invite you to like us, comment, and share with others what you hear on the show. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world – Take a moment to send a donation of any size to NuclearHotSeat.com. We will really be grateful for your support. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that you have all had your nuclear wake-up call. Now, don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the Nuclear Hot Seat. Nuclear Hot Seat It's the bomb.